0: Good evening, brothers and sisters. It's good to see you. I always enjoy. It's an honor to be able to have these times to share with you. Little intimidating standing up here after Rob, Rick, Charlie Kirk, whoever. But um, anyway, it's a privilege. It's a privilege to share um, what God has put on our hearts, and I and I just pray that as you've come this this evening, however you've come that uh, you're open, open to hearing what the Lord would have to speak to you. And um, that's really what the Lord has uh, kind of been putting on my heart. You know, I don't need to tell you the times that we live in are crazy. Reading and watching the news, witnessing events unfold, you know, I'm often just left with, uh, with my mind spinning Sometimes my emotions are running hot. I feel like I'm ready to sign up to join a militia somewhere. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that, but I just did. (laughs) But, you know, I find myself bewildered, upset, angry, asking myself, am I going mad? And I'm not sure if you were here when the frontline doctor was here. I was just relieved that she assured me that I'm not going mad. Um, And the remedy as... As Pastor Rick would say, we just need to be like a donkey in a hailstorm, right? Ears back, plodding forward. Or as my wife would say when she was driving our Land Rover in Uganda, heading into the thick of traffic, traffic kind of coming at you from all directions, you're entering a roundabout where no one is, no one is heeding you and no one is making, stopping and letting you go. You just got to put your hands on the wheel, close your eyes and just go. So, plow through. So, where do I find myself? Keeping my eyes in the right place. Keeping my mind thinking about the right things. Keeping my heart in that place of peace. Keeping my feet walking in the right direction. And all of that is really keeping my dependence upon God and his word, keeping my dependence upon God and his word. This has been kind of the theme, the focus of my effort, the theme of my meditation, keeping these things, keeping my dependence upon God. Many of you know um, that my wife and I spent a good amount of time in in Uganda, and I remember sitting in a small room, which was a house, 10 by 10-ish, That was the extent of the house, with a woman. Her name was Winnie, and several of her other children sitting around her, and she just had this enormous hernia surgery. But everything that she owned was in this room with her, and you could probably count on both hands the number of things that she actually owned in this world. And to hear her problems, AIDS, husband that left her, death in the family, children with no school fees, food that was that's provision was uncertain. And I had no real way to help her other than to pray for her. But the joy that came to her face when we finished praying, the joy and gratitude to know that her issue was in the hands of God she had a very simple faith in God. And I could tell that her dependence truly was on God. You know, my wife and I certainly had our share of of trials when we were there, but one of the most difficult was in the years between 2010 and 2012. And it was right when things were going great in the church that we planted, and um, one of our young ministers, I won't say his name, But he was a man that I had taught in Bible school. I had poured literally my life in Uganda, that six years, into him, and really thought of him him as a son to me. And he was a youth pastor. And we found out through various uh, channels that he had molested several girls within the youth group. And that, in and of itself, was heartbreaking. But this became national news. Not only in Uganda, but in other countries, in Kenya, they were hearing about this. We had supporters in Australia calling us and saying, Craig, what's going on at your church? And for the next two years, we would go through this, this, this slog. Because, you see, originally, while, when we confronted him, he admitted and I told him, I said, if you do the right thing, if you go and admit, go to the police, admit your issue, um, I know that, that God will take care of you and, and we'll walk through this with you as we will walk through these young girls who've been abused. But somehow in the midst of being in prison, he got scared. And he turned against us. And he turned it into a case of wrongful uh, defamation, wrongful termination, racism. Um, they call white people mzungus. They, they said it's the issue of mzungus against black people. It just, it became extremely ugly. And while it was a case that, I'm not a lawyer, but this was a case that a fourth grader could have tried, the, the evidence was so clear. Over the, nec- the course of the next two years, it just became agonizingly frustrating as one by one bits of this, this case were dropped or lost or files were taken away and, or people didn't turn up. And we would go every week to, the, to the, um, the court and pay the cost of having these girls come so that they could be representative and they wouldn't turn up. And it was very obvious to us that all, everything was stacked against us. Even the other churches in the community turned against us because they said that's not the way to treat a pastor. And so, for the next two years, standing for the rights of these three young girls, we went through hell. And it was only in the thought that we were doing the right thing and we were being obedient to the word that we had strength to persevere. And that story had a good ending. I mean, it came to the point where we thought, we're going to jail, we're going to get sued, we're going to lose everything. My wife was being called and threatened and, I mean, you name it, it was happening. But on Thanksgiving Day in 2012, a woman who was a a judge took it upon herself to try the case and she uh, she found him guilty and he ended up going to prison. And those young girls experienced justice. That was a trying time. And like I said, it was only in just gutting it out and trusting that we were doing the right thing and that the Lord would take care of us that got us through. You know, today we're in the midst of uncertain times like like I've never seen. And we see it happening in our country, and maybe those things have knock-on effects in our personal lives. And we may be facing personal crises of one sort or another, and And our minds are spinning. We're wondering, what should we do? What should we do? And it's very tempting to be like the proverbial ostrich that goes and sticks its head in the sand and just pretends everything is okay. Certainly, that's a tempting thing. On the other extreme, we might very well find ourselves just getting involved in a frenzy of activity where we're trying to fix everything. And I'm not saying that the fixing part isn't something we should be a part of, but I, I think where I'm going at this, this evening is that before we try to fix our problems, whether they be our children or our wife or our husband, or before we try to fix our finances by getting another job or a new job, before we try to fix our nation by marching and picketing, we need to establish in our heart a very important truth. And that is, who are we depending on? Where does our dependence lie? Where do we go for truth? One of the reasons I love studying God's word, especially the Old Testament, is we see as we study scripture that really nothing is new to God. Nothing is new under the sun. We're in the book of Ezekiel in our church reading, and so I took for my passage just passages from the first three chapters of Ezekiel because they really spoke to me. Because Ezekiel lived in a time of unprecedented crisis. Personally, on a national level, In all of the nation, uh, uh, the history of Israel, there was it was a crisis, and I want to take this evening to learn from just the first three chapters of Ezekiel and learn a lesson of dependence upon God. But before we do that, let's pray. Father, I'm grateful. I'm grateful for the opportunity to share this evening with my brothers and sisters who are here. And Lord, I I know what's in my heart, but I don't know what's in the heart of of these who have walked in here. I can only imagine the various kinds of issues that we we drag into church with us. And Lord, you alone know how and are able to minister to our hearts. And I just pray that this evening, through your word, in our worship, In this teaching, as we take communion, Lord, you administer to us in the way that you alone know we need ministry. And so, Lord, bless this time, bless your word in Jesus' name, amen. So turn in your Bible to Ezekiel chapter 1, and we'll begin reading. It says, now it came to pass in the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the captives by the river Chebar, that the heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. And on the fifth day of the month, which was in the fifth year of King Jehoiachin's captivity, the word of the Lord came expressly to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans by the river Chebar, and the hand of the Lord was upon him there. So what do we know about Ezekiel here? Well, we see here, it says in the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, verse 3 tells us that Ezekiel was a priest, and we know from Numbers chapter 4 verse 3 that priests began their temple service in their 30th year. So this reference here is likely referring to Ezekiel's age at the time of the beginning of this book. He was probably 30. And the reference to this specific date should give us confidence, assurance that Ezekiel's account was not some far-fetched legend because certainly as you read on in chapter 1, it's going to take us into what sounds like fantasy land when he starts describing what he saw. But he references a specific date and this should give us the assurance as to the truth Of what's being stated here he was it was not a legend he was a real person who lived in a real place and on a specific and memorable day he had a remarkable vision from god it says there i was among the captives by the river chibar now though some of you know your israel history but for those of you who don't i'll just give you a little refresher course in the last years of the 600, 605 through 587, the Babylonians had a series of attacks in which they eventually overwhelmed and conquered and destroyed Judah. And they took Judah into captivity in three waves. In 605, that was the first one, Jerusalem was attacked, Daniel and other captives were taken into Babylon. In 597, Jerusalem was again attacked by Babylon, and this time treasures were taken from the temple and more captives were taken to Babylon. And then the last time was 587. Jerusalem is completely destroyed. The temple is completely dismantled and almost everyone remaining in the kingdom of Judah was exiled into Babylon. Now Ezekiel was one of those taken in the second phase, 597. And Second Kings chapter 24 describes the conquest that led to Ezekiel's captivity. And we are led to believe from the text that he never returned to Judah. Now the text there says there, on the fifth day of the month, which was the fifth year of King Jehoiachin's captivity... So remember that King Jehoiakim was taken in that second wave, 597. So this would put the date of the writing of Ezekiel at about 593 BC. 593 is when he was writing it. So there's still one more attack that's going to be coming from Babylon. Now Ezekiel's prophetic ministry began when Judah was still an independent kingdom. And the temple was still functioning in in Jerusalem. And during this time, Ezekiel's in Babylon, but there were still many false prophets, false prophets in Babylon, false prophets in Jerusalem, who were saying that God was going to come and rescue them, and that those already in captive would be taken back to Jerusalem. They were giving a false message of hope. And so Ezekiel's message, as we read through it, some of you have read through the chapters that Um, We're reading for today. I think we're up to seven or eight. But Ezekiel's message would be in stark contrast. In that sense, there was no message of hope. It would be a rebuke because, in fact, it was a sinful wish to escape the judgment that God was going to bring by the Babylonians because God was actually at this point out to discipline the nation of Israel. Ezekiel's message was actually giving people real hope, though that was a hard hope. It was a real hope and not an empty hope of the false prophets. What else do we know about Ezekiel? Well, the name Ezekiel signifies strength of God or strengthened by God. We can do a little math and figure out that he was probably born around 623 B.C., if Ezekiel 1-1 refers to his age. And when he wrote this, he was at, this, at Chebar, which is a river in Babylon, probably a royal canal of King Nebuchadnezzar. He was with other Jew, Jewish captives. We would fi- we'll find out later in the book that he was married and he had his own home in captivity. We find out that his wife would die um, sometime during his ministry, and he was commanded never to remarry again. He served during the same time as Jeremiah and Daniel. And his ministry, his prophecy, would last for about 20 years. So I want us to stop for a second and consider the context and the implications of just these first three verses. It was under Josiah just 30 years prior to Ezekiel writing this, just 30 years prior, that an amazing revival happened in the nation of Israel. And they turned away from the idolatry that they had been practicing. Well, what happened 30 years earlier? Well, if you turn in your Bible to 2 Kings chapter 22, let's just read quickly some of what happened just 22 years prior. In uh, 2 Kings chapter 22, it says... Josiah was eight years old when he became king, which would have been 640 BC. He reigned for 31 years, which would have been 609 BC. And it says he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. And it came to pass in the 18th year of King Josiah. Now, the 18th year of King Josiah was 623, 622, right around the exact date when Ezekiel was born. And it says that that the king sent Shaphan, the scribe, to the house of the Lord, saying, go up to Hilkiah, the high priest. Now, Hilkiah was likely the father of Jeremiah the prophet. So this was Jeremiah's father. So Josiah says to Shaphan, go to Hilkiah, the high priest, that he may count the money which has been brought into the house of the Lord. Verse five, let them deliver it into the hands of those doing the work who are overseers of the house of the Lord. Then Hilkiah the priest said to Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan and he read it. So Shaphan the scribe went to the king and showed the king saying, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king, verse 11, and it happened when the king heard the words of the book that he tore his clothes. I didn't read every verse and every word, but, and it would be worth your while to do so, but the gist of it is, is that here we have King Josiah kind of going about his job as a king, and he's rebuilding or repairing the temple, and he says to his scribe, go count the money so that we know how we're doing with the funds to rebuild the house, and the high priest tells him, wow, in the course of doing this remodel, we found an old book. Turns out, it was the book of the law. And so it says Shaphan took it back to the king, and after telling him about the accounts and the finances and the progress, he says, oh, and we found a book. And he read it. And the, and the reading of the word of God touched Josiah's heart. And it ultimately would lead to a great revival. This is an amazing text of Scripture. A few po- high points here. According to Deuteronomy chapter 31, there was to be a copy of the book of the law in the temple beside the Ark of the Covenant, beginning from the days of Moses. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, it tells us that each king was to have a personal copy of the of the law, and he was to read it regularly. In Deuteronomy chapter 31, it tells us the entire law was to be read to an assembly of the nation once every seven years. Now, when you read through the Old Testament, you'll find that there were very few times where it's recorded that they actually publicly read the Old Testament. The first is in Joshua chapter 8, verse 30. The next time the Bible records this public reading is 500 years later, during the reign of Jehoshaphat. And then the third time is here, during the reign of Josiah, there was another public reading, and that's more than 250 years later after Jehoshaphat. A lot of time has spanned. And I'm not saying that there weren't other public readings, but the fact that these were recorded makes one think that it was unusual. It wasn't typical. Look at verse 8 again. It says that Hilkiah, the priest, read the book. (laughs) It's remarkable that the, the high priest, who was supposed to be the keeper of the law, the keeper of the temple, the representative and mouthpiece of God, was serving in the temple... And he didn't even know what this book was. He found the book and the scribe read it. Obviously, the word of God was so neglected in those days that this was worthy of mention. In verses 9 through 10, it says, Shaphan simply told the king, Hilkiah has given me a book. Again, after discussing the money and the overseers and the workmen, he talks about a book that he, he didn't even know what it was. It was only a book. The point that I see here is, is that though the worship of God was the center of Jewish life, traditions, and worship, or maybe I, I should say the word of God was at the center of Jewish life, traditions, and worship, it was obviously greatly neglected in the nation of Israel. And this could only happen because Judah was in a prolonged disobedience to God. It says in verse 10 that Shaphan read it before the king. And what do we see happens? It says the the, the king, when he heard it, the words of the book, he tore his clothes. What an awesome statement there here the word of god begins to spread it had been forgotten it had been regarded as nothing more than a book nothing more than an old dusty book that they didn't even know what it was and now it's found and it's read and king josiah heard it and he heated it and it spread and there was a revival and if you go on in, in 2 Kings chapter 22, it was, a, it was a wonderful revival in the nation of Israel. You know, as we read that, we've, there are so many parallels to where we find ourselves today, isn't there? So many parallels. We have a church that we have, not, I'm not speaking about this church, but I'm talking about the greater church, the, the church around the world that in many cases, though it is said to be about the worship of God, it is largely neglecting the word of God itself. But here's the encouragement, and it's for us personally. Revival and renewal will follow our reverence for God and dependence on his word. Revival and renewal will follow our reverence for God and our dependence upon his word. And this starts with you and me. We can't wait for someone else to do that. It starts with a personal conviction, like it was a personal conviction to King Josiah. Throughout the history of God's people, when the word of God is recovered and spread, spiritual revival follows. And it can be, begin as simply as it did in the days of Josiah with one man finding and reading and believing and spreading the book. Such is the power of the word of God. You know, when Paul would speak to the, Philippian, uh, the Thessalonians, in chapter 2, verse 13, he says, I thank my God that when you received the word, you did not receive it as the word of men, but the word of God, which it is, which effectively transforms those who believe. Brothers and sisters, that's something we can do. We can make the word of God and the reading of the word of God, because the word of God does not return void without accomplishing that which it sent forth to accomplish. That's something we can do. That's a a discipline, that's a habit we can develop. But back to our passage, we're not studying 2 Kings, we're studying Ezekiel. Fast forward from that account, just 30 years, back to 593 BC, back to Ezekiel, who had been part of this this great, though short-lived, revival. He grew up under King Josiah. But not only would he grow up under that great revival, he would witness what must have been a rapid downfall as the nation once again turned away from God. And now, here in, in Ezekiel chapter 1, he finds himself five years into a captivity in Babylon. We're sitting here today. I remember what it was like 30 years ago. It's hard, it's not hard to put ourselves in his shoes. A country seeming to be on the right track not so long ago now seems to be in a free fall. Imagine the feelings of heartbreak, disappointment, discouragement as we witness the tragic downfall of our beloved Judah. This is what was happening in Ezekiel's eyes. Here's Ezekiel, a priest He's by the river. He's far from home. He's captive to the Babylonians. He's amongst a foreign and a pagan people. He's likely anxious and and depressed. He's wondering where God is and what he's doing. Maybe he, he has doubts about God altogether. I'm sure his trust was shaken. Maybe you can relate to what Ezekiel was likely going through. But what happens? Again, Back to Ezekiel chapter one, there. It says, verse one, the heavens were open, and I saw visions of God. And the word of the Lord came expressly to Ezekiel, and the hand of the Lord was upon him. You know, Ezekiel didn't have a time frame of when all this was happening or what was going to happen. Suddenly, into his darkness, his hopelessness, God speaks to him. Ezekiel in chapter one, goes on to describe an amazing vision and as he is beside the river Chibar. And I want to read it because when you read it slowly and just kind of take in what Ezekiel is saying, it's an amazing passage. So let's read, just follow along with me again. I'm not reading every verse, but I'll read it slowly. It says in verse four, then I looked... And behold, a whirlwind was coming out of the north, a great cloud with raging fire engulfing itself, and brightness was all around it, and radiating out of its mist, like the color of amber, out of the midst of the fire. And from within it came the likeness of four living creatures, and this was their appearance. They had the likeness of a man, each one had four faces, each one had four wings, As for the likeness of their faces, each one had the face of a man, each each of the four had the face of a lion on the right side, the face of an ox on the left side, and the face of an eagle. Now, verse 15, as I looked at the living creatures, behold, a wheel was on the earth beside each living creature with its four faces. And the appearance of the wheels and their workings was like the color of beryl. And all four had the same likeness. The appearance of their workings was, as it were, a wheel in the middle of a wheel. And as for their rims, they were so high, they were awesome. And their rims were full of eyes, and all around the four of them. And wherever the Spirit wanted to go, they went, because there the Spirit went. And the wheels were lifted together with them, for the Spirit of the living creatures was in the wheel." And above the firmament, over the heads, was the likeness of a throne in the appearance like a sapphire stone. And on the likeness of the throne was a likeness with the appearance of a man high above it. And like the appearance of a rainbow, verse 28, in a cloud on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And so when I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard a voice of one speaking. You know, when you read that passage, and, you, and here is Ezekiel trying to put into human words a vision that he saw of these four creatures that had four wings, that had four faces, that had this wheel that was in, is surrounded by eyes, that were going here and there. And above all of this, the throne and the likeness of the glory of the Lord. He's trying to put in human words something that is likely to be very indescribable. And it says he fell on his face. His reaction was humility, it was worship. And it says, I heard a voice of one speaking. And that was the vision. Chapter two, it says, and he said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet, and I will speak to you. Then the Spirit entered me when he spoke to me, and he set me on my feet, and I heard him who spoke to me, and he said to me, Son of man, I am sending you to the children of Israel, to a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day, for they are an impudent and stubborn children, and I am sending you to them, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God, but you, son of man, hear what I say to you. Do not be rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth, eat what I give you. Now, when I looked, verse 9, there was a hand stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was written on it. And he spread it before me, and there was writing on the inside and on the outside, and written on it were lamentations and mourning and woe. That's what the scroll had on it. And moreover, he said to me, Son of man, eat what you find, eat this scroll. And go, speak to the house of Israel. And so I opened my mouth, and he caused me to eat the scroll. And he said, son of man, feed your belly, fill your stomach with this scroll that I give you. So I ate, and it was in my mouth like honey and sweetness. You know, Ezekiel, we we looked at the context, his life. And he certainly is someone that we could relate to today. He had gone through far more than anything that we had experienced. He knew crisis. He knew disappointment. He knew heartache. He knew a nation falling away from the Lord. And I want us to share, I want us to see three principles that relate to Ezekiel's dependence upon God because certainly that's what he showed himself to be a man dependent upon God in the midst of what he was going through. You know, Ezekiel grew up in the time of a revival only to witness the tragic demise of his country. He became a captive in a foreign country. And and at the time that he had this um, vision, he was likely in in a state of despondency. You know, he didn't know, again, he didn't know God's timeline. He didn't know where he fit into it. He didn't know how long it would be before God would speak. He lived in a a difficult time. He had a difficult life. And it didn't seem to be getting any better. I have to believe, and this is inferring, but I have to believe that through all of what Ezekiel lived through, though it was hard, Though it was difficult, he remained faithful. Because it is to Ezekiel that God would appear. I have to infer that he had been faithful to the word of God, that he had been faithful in prayer, faithful in obedience to the command of the Lord, faithful through the hardships, even when there wasn't a lot of feedback. Not a lot of feedback from God, not a lot of feedback from the nation of Israel the people he served faithful you know paul speaks to this in 1 corinthians chapter 4 verses 1 and 2 he says let a man consider us as servants of christ and stewards of the mysteries of god moreover it is required in stewards that one be found faithful Jesus speaks to faithfulness in Matthew 24, 13. He says, Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many, and because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures or is faithful or perseveres to the end shall be saved. Faithfulness, endurance, perseverance. Perseverance, we know, is long obedience. In the same direction. You know, we live in a day when it's so easy to be distracted. We all crave normality. We crave diversion. Our minds are disturbed. Our hearts are not at peace. We feel the oppression of the deceit and the corruption and the lies that are around us. I'm sure Ezekiel felt all of that. But somehow he managed to be true. And my encouragement to you this evening, and it's not necessarily an easy fix, but nonetheless it is the truth, is we, we as Christians need to be and need to learn and need to continue in faithfulness to the things that we know we should be doing. Amen? We need to be faithful to the Word of God, to the reading of the Word of God. We need to be faithful in prayer. We need to be faithful in fellowship. I'm so grateful we have a church that actually meets. I'm amazed that there are so many churches that don't think that fellowship is is important. Acts chapter 2, verse 42 says, they gave themselves to the doctrine of the apostles and to fellowship. And fellowship is so important in God's economy and what he's doing, the sanctification process that he's doing in us. We need to be faithful in these things. Suddenly, moving on, into this darkness, God appears in an incredible vision to Ezekiel. I just did in a cursory way, but I would encourage you to take chapter 2 and slowly read through it. Allowing your imagination to bring to life what Ezekiel saw and what Ezekiel was trying to describe. God appeared to Ezekiel in an, in an awesome vision of himself. And when you read through it, you'll see that it's, it's incredible. It's vivid. It's colorful. It's a vision that must have just taken Ezekiel's breath away. And it left Ezekiel on his face. And you know what? It would be necessary. It, we, he would find it necessary. Necessary. In the coming years of his prophetic ministry, 20 years, it would be necessary for Ezekiel to have had that very clear vision of the one he was speaking for and whose message he was proclaiming. You know, Ezekiel's message during his prophetic ministry would be difficult. He would be tried. His medal would be tried. His work and his words were going to be difficult. His message we know, would largely be ignored because it was a hard message. It wasn't good news. He certainly was not one of those that was going to get many likes or followers, was he? He would be shamed and he would be persecuted. He, would, he had to have a clear vision of the God he served, the almighty God, the all-powerful God, the all-beautiful God, to keep him going in the right direction, for the long haul, for those 20 years. You know my dog, uh, we have a dog, his name's Cadbury, she's a a Labrador, Brown Lab. And we think she's the greatest dog in the world, but I'm sure you think your dog is the greatest dog in the world. But uh, nonetheless, we love her. She's a Brown Lab that we brought from Africa with us. Um, And as cheap missionaries, we said, Cadbury, you're not getting over the Atlantic for free. So she bred a a litter of puppies, and we sold them, and she paid her way across. (laughs) But um, we were blessed to spend our 30th anniversary a, a week ago in Coronado, and we went to the dog beach. And Cadbury, of course, if you have a lab, they love water. And wherever we go, no matter where you are, if there's a puddle, she'll find it and walk through it, right? She'll find... It and get at least part of her body wet. But when we go in the water, she suddenly becomes extremely concerned and very protective and divided. Usually it's me in the water and Lauren uh, on the shore, and she's looking back and forth, wondering what she should do. But this past time, I decided, I'm not not a surfer, but I like to body surf, and I I decided to swim out as far as I could um, to catch some good waves. And it must have been maybe 50 yards out. And my wife was on shore and the whole time, my wife is telling me, Cadbury sat with a worried face just intently looking at me. She would not take her eyes off of wherever I was. And finally she couldn't hold herself any any longer and she plunges in the water and starts swimming towards me. And she had been swimming and she has no problem swimming but this was a long, a long swim. And as I watched her swim tor- towards me, it was amazing, because I would just see her little head bobbing, and her, her little head was just always aimed right towards me, and then a wave would hit her and she'd disappear for a few minutes, and then she'd bob up, and then she'd still pl- and I mean, it was just she was just intent on reaching me. And eventually she did. And her eyes fixed on her master the whole time. And we were talking as we observed this on that occasion others when she's just intently looking at us and what we're going to do that illustration of keeping our eyes our vision on our master never wavering from keeping jesus as the one who's filling our vision you know hebrews chapter 12 verses 1 through 3 are awesome verses it says therefore Since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance, there's that word again, endurance, the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. The author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, And has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And then verse three says, for consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You know, Jesus was not looking forward to the cross. But he got through the cross by fixing his eyes on the Father and the will of the Father. Jesus calls us to fix our eyes upon him. There's a wonderful hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Do you know that one? Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. An awesome hymn, it's so true. And it's, you guys, it's so hard, it's so easy to have wayward eyes, because there's so many things that we can be in, in, involved with, so many ways that we can be distracted, and, and our vision of Jesus is either diminished or it grows dim. Where are our eyes fixed? And that goes back to the faithfulness. That faithfulness in reading God's word and that faithfulness in depending upon God's word is part and parcel of keeping a big vision of Jesus. Amen? Amen. The last thing that I see in relation to Ezekiel's dependence is obedience. The message that God called Ezekiel to preach was hard. Verse 10 says, Then he spread it before me, and there was writing on the inside and on the outside, and written on it were lamentations and mournings and woe. Verse, chapter 3, verse 1. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, eat what you find, eat the scroll, go and speak to the house of Israel. This was not the message of prosperity. This was not the message of blessing. It was not the health and wealth gospel by any means. This was not the easy message to grow a church. It was a bitter message. It was a hard message. And I'm sure that Ezekiel in his heart would have much liked an easier message to share. But look as the passage continues. As he obeyed it, it says, verse two, he opened his mouth I opened my mouth, and he caused me to eat the scroll. And he said, Son of man, feed your belly, fill your stomach with this scroll that I give you. And so I ate, and it was in my mouth like honey and sweetness. As Ezekiel was obedient to do what God asked him to do, to eat the scroll of lamentation and mourning And whoa, the bitter message, the hard job that God was asking him to do became like what? Like honey and sweetness. Not only was it tolerable, it tasted good. It became like honey. It was nourishment. It was fulfilling. He could do it. He was able. I want you to think on this for a second. There were prophets before Ezekiel that had the job of preaching a message of repentance. And sometimes, many cases, Israel repented, and they were blessed with the sweetness of seeing their nation return to God. Ezekiel didn't have that job. He had the job of preaching lamentation, mourning, and woe. And these things would come about. If you read on in Ezekiel, you'll find the words doom and disaster. The end has come. It's it's dark. But nonetheless, as Ezekiel was obedient to do what God called him to do, the Bible says it was as honey and sweetness. Brothers and sisters, we don't know the times that we live in. We may be in a time... Where, like in the days of jo- Josiah, God speaks through the church. God speaks through a priest or a king or a prophetess, as in the days of Josiah, and brings about a glorious revival and ushers in a golden age, and we will see the joyful fruit of our labor. As well, we may be entering into a time, a long time of darkness, like Ezekiel did. And our calling as Christians is going to be a long slog of perseverance in in standing for truth. Or we may be nearing the end. In which case, assuming we're born again, assuming we have Jesus in our heart, assuming he's the Lord of our life, we'll be raptured, we'll be taken out of this world that seems to be spiraling ever downward. And we wonder how much farther it can go. But here's the point. Fill your stomach with the scroll I give you. Feed on the word. Be faithful in the disciplines of the faith. The word, fellowship, prayer. Keep your gaze intently on the master. And like Ezekiel, you can be assured that whatever task that he calls us to whether it is to bring revival whether it is to be that preacher of a message that no one no one listens to it will be honey and sweetness it will be something that nourishes us it will be doable it will be fulfilling it will give us purpose and joy You know, faith, that which enables us to be declared righteous before God is all about depending wholly on God. Jeremiah chapter 17. We're getting close to the end here. Verse five says, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and and makes flesh his strength. Whose heart departs from the Lord. For he shall be like a shrub in the desert and shall see no good when he comes, but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose hope is in the Lord, for he shall be like a tree planted by the waters which spreads out its roots by the river and will not fear when the heat comes, but its leaf will be green and will not be anxious in the years of drought nor will it cease from yielding fruit. Praise the Lord. You know, we, we certainly want to be that church that is occupying until the Lord comes because we don't know where, as Ezekiel didn't know where he was in the timeline of God. We don't know where we are in, the, in God's timeline. And we're called to continue in our effort to take the gospel forward. We're called to continue to have an impact that the church only has upon the world. And when is it that we will have the greatest impact for change upon our world? You know, as I close, I wanna just remind us of the story of Gideon in Judges chapter seven. Because you remember the story of Gideon. Israel had forsaken their dependence upon God, and God allowed the Midianites overrun them. And when God called Gideon, he was threshing wheat. This is in Judges 6 and 7. He was threshing wheat in order to hide from the Midianites. He was weak. He was scared. And God had a calling on Gideon's life, though he didn't know it. And that was to lead the Israelites in battle to overthrow the Midianites. The Midianites, he would say, oh God, they are a big and terrible people. And God would reply, don't worry about the Midianites. And Gideon would say, but God, what do you mean don't worry about them? Don't you see that there are hundreds of thousands of them and I only have 32,000 men? And God would say, yes, Gideon, I see them. I have better eyesight than you do. But Gideon, you're not seeing me. And Gideon would say, but God, you're up there. I'm down here, I'm weak, I'm scared. My family is the least and the lowest. I'm not qualified to lead these people. I have no money, no experience. You say, no problem, but this is a big problem for me. And God would say, Gideon, trust me. Now listen, those 32,000 men you have, that's, that's too many. <laughs> Tell whoever wants to go home to go home. And it says that 22,000 went home. And God would say, now Gideon, that 10,000 you have is still too many. Tell those who drank water in a certain way from the creek to go home. And 9,700 went home. And then God said, 300, perfect. If I would have been in Gideon's shoes, I certainly would have been one that said, God, you're crazy if you think we can defeat this large army with 300 ill-equipped men. And then God would tell him his plan. And after he tells him his plan, I'm sure he thought he was even more crazy because here was his plan. Each person was going to carry a lamp under a pot into the enemy camp. And when the time was right, they would shout the name of the Lord and break the clay pots and the light would shine forth. Now you guys know the end of the story. They did it and there was a massive overrun of the Midian army. We don't know where we are in God's timeline of history. But nonetheless, until he comes, God does have a plan for our lives and our ministry. And it's one that's not accomplished by might or power, but by his spirit and 100% dependence upon him. The Bible tells us in Corinthians that we are earthen vessels made of clay. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 through 11 says, for it is God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. And listen to Paul's words here. He says, we are hard pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed but not in despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, verse 10, that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our body. You guys, just like those broken pots that Gideon had to break to show the light, that's us. It's only when we get self out of the way that the bright light of Jesus in us can be seen to the world around us. In other words, like those pots, we need to be broken. When is the church going to start really impacting society? It's when they start seeing Jesus in the church. And how are they going to see Jesus? It's only when we have come to the place where we are broken and our dependence is on him. It's then that the light of the glory of the face of Jesus can be seen to the world. Where is our dependence today? Are we faithful? Is our vision faithful in the simple things that we know we should be doing? Faithful to the simple commands of the word of God? Is our vision full of Jesus? Or is our vision so cluttered with other things that Jesus is just a tiny little part that we can hardly determine him in our day-to-day life? Are we being obedient to the calling that God has for you? We don't all have the same calling. Back to that verse in Hebrews. Running with endurance the race that is set before us. Each of us has our own race. My race is not your race and yours isn't mine. God has a calling on your life, even as he had a calling on Ezekiel's life. Are you obedient to your calling? Faithful in carrying out that calling. We're taking communion today. And we're going to end with communion. I'm not sure if the uh, worship team is going to come up. But what a wonderful way to end our service. Jesus told us at the Last Supper, as he broke the bread, as he took the cup, to do it often. And now we we know that what was celebrated as the Passover ultimately was fulfilled in Jesus. The Passover was looking forward And what was fulfilled in Jesus, we remember in communion. We're looking back. Communion doesn't do anything for us now other than remind us of what Jesus has done. And we know that the bread is symbolic of the body of Jesus. And when we take that bread and we break it, we're reminded of the fact that it was only through Christ's suffering, beginning from leaving heaven and coming to earth, And allowing himself to be broken, that the blood could be shed. But all that is significant in displaying and illustrating how much he loves you, how much he loves me. And so as you take of the bread, you're remembering the broken body of Jesus. And allow yourself just to to be overwhelmed in the knowledge of all that Jesus did so that he could spend eternity with you. That's what we're remembering when we take the bread. And when we take the cup, it's grape juice, it's wine. Symbolic of the blood of Jesus. You guys, there's nothing that we can do to earn our way to heaven. There's no amount of good works, no amount of money we can give, no amount of prayer. The only thing that makes us right before God is the blood of Jesus having washed us and taken away the stain of of sin and the blood of Jesus is the only thing that can take away that stain and so as you take the cup it's not asking God to forgive, it's remembering that he has forgiven and it's by his blood, it's in his blood that we are forgiven and that we are able to stand before God one day as righteous and so as the worship team leads us in this last song Take time. Pray, do what you need to do to come before the Lord. But most of all, remember and appreciate what it is that the Lord has done for you. And I pray that as you have, as we have looked at the early life of Ezekiel in these first few chapters, I pray that you will be encouraged to keep your dependence on him because he's the one he's the only one that is sure amen Lord thank you for this time this evening I just thank you for all my brethren who are here and Lord we live in challenging times Lord forgive us for our errant ways Forgive us for our wandering as we are prone to do. Forgive us for the distractions and the diversions and forgive us for the times when we depend on other things other than you, Lord. Lord, we desire you to do a work in our church and not only in this church, in your church worldwide. We do desire to be that body, that King Josiah experienced that they heard the word of the Lord and it spurred a national revival but Lord we know that you will also give us the grace to endure through whatever it is that you have for your body in the future Lord thank you we love you we just give you the rest of this evening we give you all the ministry of tomorrow in Jesus name Amen.